You're listening to the Grace Family Church Podcast. Notes for today's sermon are available by downloading the GFC Florida app. All right, hello, Grace Family Church. My name is Hal Merritt, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Grace. And I'm excited that you decided to join us here this weekend. So I'd just like to welcome all of you, all of you in this room, those that are watching online, of course, at all of our seven campuses as we continue in our series origin stories. And last week, if you missed it, you got to go back and watch it. All of our campus pastors taught on Gideon. Can we give it up for our campus pastors? They did an incredible job. They got to talk on Gideon. And this week, we're kind of continuing in that. And the the character that we're going to be talking about is a guy named Daniel. And, And when we talk about Daniel, what tends to happen is we tend to focus in on the big miracles that happened in his life. I think that's what we like to do. Like, we like the big miracles. We like fire coming down from heaven. We like water turning into wine. We like Jesus raising from the dead. But what we tend to miss sometimes when all we focus on is the miracle is what led up to it. Like what caused that to happen? What did they do in their life that led to that miracle? And with Daniel, there's a whole bunch. In fact, if we just look at the miracles of his life, we miss the reason he had incredible influence. Because his two miracles were one, Daniel was, uh, was a man that prayed to God three times a day and everyone knew it. And they said, you can't do that anymore. And he continued to do it. So they threw him into the lion's den. And it just so happened in that moment, the lions started intermittent fasting and they're like, we're good for the next 12 hours. You're lucky in this. And so he came out on the other side. And then you had his friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they decided not to bow down to the king's altar. And because of that, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Well, it just so happens that God saved them and they came out. The problem is, is when you just focus on the miracles, you think, well, if I just have a lot of faith and there's a chance I get thrown in a lion's den, God will save me. Or if there's a chance I get thrown in a fiery furnace, then God will save me. Here's the problem. How many people have been thrown into a lion's den and survived because God saved them? One. How many people have been thrown into a fiery furnace and came out because God saved them? Three. So that can't be the entire story. That can't be what we get from it. Because what I want us to do is to look at Daniel today. And Daniel is in a place of great darkness. When I say darkness, spiritual darkness, just a a, a place that absolutely hated God did not believe in him, and Daniel's in a tough place, yet he uses his influence over time to lead three national revivals. Three times in his life, he led a place, in a godless place, people were calling out for God. And so what I wanna do to start off is I I just wanna start with his origin story, the first part of his story. And we're gonna turn to Daniel 1. If you got your Bibles, you can do that. It's also on the app or on the screen. But we're gonna do something a little bit different. I'm gonna read through the entire first chapter of Daniel and just kind of talk about it as we go along. And then we're gonna get into the message. And so we start off in Daniel 1.1. It says this, during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory. If you have the ability, underline gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him, underline permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in his treasure house of his God. He placed it as a way of mocking God. See, I need you to understand what's happening here. Jerusalem has just taken over. And if you remember two weeks ago, we talked about a guy named Nehemiah. And he was remembering when Jerusalem was basically torn down. This is the moment he's remembering. So Daniel is kind of like a prequel to Nehemiah. And the reason God was allowing this to happen is because the Israelite people had gone away from God for over 400 years. 
for over 400 years. Some people think, oh, they probably just did the wrong thing. No, 400 years, they worshiped other gods. For 400 years, they went away from God. So God allowed this to happen. But notice, notice this, this is so big. Notice what Daniel says. It says, the Lord gave him. The Lord gave him, which means what? Despite the chaos that's going on, Daniel goes, God's still in control. It says the Lord allowed him to take the sacred objects. Guys, if you were a Jewish person from this time, you would understand how big this is because you didn't touch God's stuff. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant was only allowed to be carried by Levite priests. And one time they're carrying it and they're going to fall and it's about to fall and somebody tries to help them catch it and he immediately dies. In fact, you got another situation where you would go into the holies of holies in the temple, which is the only area where God would show up and the priests would go in after a cleansing ritual and they would get to meet God. Well, it just so happens that they would tie a rope around your waist. And if you weren't, I guess, purified enough and you went in and you died, they could pull you out. I don't know about you guys, but if it was my turn to go see God, I would be like, you know what? Let's give Pastor Craig another shot at it. I just think he's closer, right? It's the idea. Hey, you don't mess with God's stuff. So what Daniel is setting up in this situation is, hey, yeah, Jerusalem just got taken over, but God's still on his throne. God's still in control. We catch up in verse three. It says, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, who was also the chief of the eunuchs, which we'll talk about later, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Now, what's funny here is Daniel is basically talking about himself. So you'll see this. It says, select only the strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. He's like, if I say so myself. He said, make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning and gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of the Babylonians. What was the literature of Babylonians? Basically, how to serve a demon god and astrology. What was the language? It was Chaldean. And they had to learn it in three years. This was before Rosetta Stone. There was no classes. I mean, I don't know about you. I took four semesters of Spanish and I only, I only know how to get to the bathroom. <laughs> These guys learned this language. They were the brightest and God also allowed them to be in that place. It says this, it says the king then assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen from all the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with the Babylonian names. Notice this, this is something that you see. When you bring people in, when you bring in slaves or you're trying to brainwash somebody, you change their name because their name has meaning. It says Daniel was called Belshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. How big was the meaning of the name? Daniel means God is my judge. Not only God can judge, that's a tattoo. <laughs> it says God is my judge. You know what Belshazzar means? Baal's prince or Satan's prince. So your name literally goes from God is who I serve to demon prince. That's a big change. My wife, we, we call her Chrissy, but her, her name is Christian. It was like if one day I came up to her and I said, hey, your name is Christian, but today I'm gonna call you demon. She would not be okay with that. But that's what they're doing in this moment. They're changing his name. But what you notice throughout all of Daniel is he uses his name because he remembers who he is. It says, but Daniel was determined not to devile himself by eating the food and wine given to him by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now, God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. Once again, Daniel's recognizing God is still moving. 
It says, but he responded, I am afraid of my Lord, the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Meaning this, if you lose weight, I lose my head. Because in that time, a sign of royalty was you gained weight. Great time to live. And, and so the, he's going, hey, I can't, you cannot lose weight because I will lose my head. That's how big this is. It says, Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It says, please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. Now, vegans, wait just a second. That's not saying that that's the holiest diet, Okay. The reason they had to do just vegetables and water is because the way the food was prepared was not kosher, one, and two, it had been sacrificed to a demon God. And so God said, you cannot eat those things. And apparently the only things that weren't good enough to be sacrificed to the demon God were the vegetables. I was playing, that's true. So at the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, Daniel and his three friends look healthier and better nourished. Better nourished literally means they gained weight on a diet of vegetables and water. It's only God. It says, and the young men that have been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided to the others. Now notice the way Daniel goes at this. He doesn't go, hey, this is what I'm going to eat. He doesn't say, this is what's going to happen. He says, hey, I realize there's a lot on the line for you. Can we do it this way? It says, then God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was over, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, with no one impressed them as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. They actually moved as high as the king's cabinet. I mean, imagine that. You conquer an area. The last thing you want to do is put those people ahead of your people in your cabinet. But that's how incredible they were. It says, whenever the king consulted them in any manner requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them 10 times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in the entire kingdom. Then it says this. It says, Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. Why is that a big deal? Well, the Persians conquered the Babylonians, and Daniel was so good at his job that they still kept him on. Now, what I want us to get to is Daniel's story, but I need us to understand how bad the situation that he was in and how evil Babylon is. Babylon was an incredibly evil place. In fact, we know this, if the angels are up in heaven and talking about incredible evil and an evil place, they refer to that place as Babylon. Because when we look in the book of Revelation, when God is taking over and taking back the, the kingdom for him, it actually says, the angels say this, they say, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Not fallen, fallen is Sodom and Gomorrah. Not fallen, fallen is Las Vegas. Not fallen, fallen is Nazi Germany, but fallen, fallen is Babylon. Why? Because it was evil. It served the demon gods. There was child sacrifice. There was evil things happening. It was led by a guy named Nebuchadnezzar that funded it, that allowed it all to happen, that allowed these things to go on. And the culture, like I said, guys, their culture, all their literature was about the occult. It was about worshiping demon gods. It was about astrology. It was about those things. And so the things that Daniel was forced to learn were things that he didn't believe in at all. And on top of it, we just look at Daniel's situation. 
Daniel's city was torn down. People he loved were killed. On top of that, he was enslaved, he was kidnapped, his name was changed. And what we can understand from scripture is this. And I lost a lot of the guys last time I mentioned this, but just, just stay with me. We, we believe from scripture and what we can understand that he was castrated. And here's why we believe that. The, the king at that time would have a whole bunch of wives that he called his harem. And if you're an older king getting older and you have a whole bunch of young wives that are good looking, what's the last thing you want around them? A whole bunch of young men from places you just conquered. And so what they would do is they would castrate them. They would be what's called eunuchs. You actually see him talk about how the guy that was ahead of him was chief of the eunuchs. On top of that, we see that Daniel never talks about having kids, never talks about having a wife. And one of the greatest blessings in the Jewish Israelite faith was to have sons who could take care of you when you were older. So we see him in this situation where his life, where he is right now, everything he thought he had was demolished and everything he thought he would go to was taken away from him. Daniel is in a place of darkness, both in, in his life and where he's at right now. He's in a place that hates God, that doesn't love God. Yet somehow, somehow, in the midst of all of it, Daniel gains enough influence to lead three national revivals. How? How does that happen? He has three secrets of influence that we wanna talk about today. And here's the first Secret, he had hope, he had hope. Can I tell you that's what we need more of today? And when I say hope, I'm not talking about, I think many times we think of, oh, hope is I hope, I hope, I hope. That's not what hope is biblically. Hope is I know, I know, I know. I know who God is, I know what he's done before and I know what he's going to do. I know what he did for us on the cross. I know what Jesus did. And so I have a hope understanding what he's going to continue to do. We see Daniel doing this many times. He goes, I understand even though everything's going wrong, God's still in control. I understand my city just got burned down, but I know that God allowed it to happen. I understand that I'm in this bad situation, but God gave me favor. What you see with Daniel is despite the chaos and everything falling apart, he still believes God is who he says he is. He has hope. Man, how incredible would it be if Christians responded with that kind of hope when things don't go our way? I see regularly Christians acting like God doesn't exist anymore when an election goes the wrong way or a court decision goes the wrong way. We lose our mind and it makes us look like we don't believe our God is in control. See, what the world around us wants to see is they wanna see people, despite the circumstances, understand that they have a future. And that's what only God can bring us. Hear me on this church, panic and despair are not from God. Panic and despair are not from God. If we wanna influence the world, we've gotta show them that we have a hope. Now that doesn't mean that we're not gonna have down times. The Bible says, weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. There are times where our situation is bad and we can mourn, but we can still have hope for the future. We can still know that God is in control. Guys, Daniel wasn't thrilled about his situation, but he still knew God was in control. People wanna follow people that are optimistic, that believe that something good is going to happen. And here's what we have. Here's what's incredible. We have a book that tells us what's gonna happen in the end. We have a book that tells us what's gonna happen in the end. It's funny, whenever I would talk to students or young adults about, hey, what book of the Bible do you guys wanna study? They'd always say Revelation. And then second was Song of Solomon. And if you don't know why, you should read it. 
Revelation is the book. It talks about end times and what they wanna know is how. Tell us exactly how it's gonna happen. Tell us what's gonna happen. I'm like, I don't know exactly how it's gonna happen. In fact, Revelation actually says, hey, you're not gonna know how it's gonna happen or when it's gonna happen until it happens. In fact, anyone that tells you they know how it's gonna happen and when it's going to happen, they're lying. They're lying. But here's what we do know. If you read to the end, I may not know how it happens, but I do know how it ends. And in the end, God wins. In the end, we win. Yet sometimes we go throughout our day acting like we're losing. Acting like we don't have a hope for the future. Jesus at one point in his ministry actually said this. He said, hey, if God's for something, the gates of hell cannot stop it. Which means this, if God is for something, Satan in his stronghold, with his gates, in his fortress, cannot stop the will of God. So if God is behind it, Satan can't stop it. And here's what we know, in the end, we will win. So we can look forward to that and have a hope in it. See, I think it's kind of like this. It's kind of like the ability to have a peace in a circumstance because you know the ending. Or watching, have you ever watched a game where you already know the ending? I, you guys got to give me a little bit of grace. I, I am a Bucks fan, okay? I've been in Tampa longer than any other time, but I grew up a Steelers fan. Tony Dungy was played for the Steelers. We love him. You should be nice to me. <laughs> Which is also the reason why I had a really hard time when Tom Brady came over, because he caused me a lot of trauma. But the 2009 Super Bowl was the Steelers against the Cardinals. And it was considered one of the greatest games because of the back and forth that happened. I remember watching this game and the first half was just a slugfest. It was about to end, it was 10 to seven, but the Cardinals were driving down the field. They got down to the two yard line. Kurt Warner throws an interception to a guy named James Harrison who runs it back 99 yards for a touchdown as time expires for us to go up 17 to seven. So I'm going, okay, we're pretty good. This is good. We start off the second half. We get a field goal. We're up 20 to seven. Things are fine. Then all of a sudden they get a touchdown and it's 20 to 14. They get a safety and it's 20 to 16. And with about three minutes left, Kurt Warner throws a 64 yard touchdown to Larry Fitzgerald and God is off his throne. <laughs> and I am so angry watching the TV. Have you ever noticed that when your team is losing, you really hate all the happy fans? I'm just mad at the fans. I'm mad at how happy they are. I'm mad that their mascot's a cardinal. I'm like, that's a dumb mascot. Nobody's ever been afraid of a cardinal. Nobody's like, oh no, a cardinal. It's like, oh look, a cardinal. And I'm just mad. I'm like, your, your mascot's dumb. And I'm yelling at the TV. It's funny, somebody actually asked me, they're like, didn't we watch that Super Bowl together? I'm like, no, we probably wouldn't be friends anymore. And so you're watching the game, then all of a sudden, Roethlisberger gets the ball back, where it started at the 22-yard and we start moving down the field. And we get down to about the seven or eight yard line and Roethlisberger, he, he goes out to his right and he throws a pass and they, we all thought he was throwing away and the announcers thought he had thrown it away, but somehow Santonio Holmes, a wide receiver, like barely gets his toes in and they just with the, the fingernails of his, of his hands, he catches the ball and they call touchdown and God is back on his throne. And it's exciting and it's great. And in the next drive, Kurt Warner fumbles the ball and we get it back. And it's just, it's great. It's awesome. We're excited. We won the Super Bowl. And then the next day they had a replay of the game. And I remember I, I started watching it in the fourth quarter. You know what? I had a lot more peace this time. I'm like watching the game and I'm okay with it. It's 20 to 16. Kurt Warner throws that bomb. Everybody's going crazy and I'm laughing. <laughs> Laugh now, you little Cardinal fans. Oh, you're so happy right now. You're not going to be tweeting later. And it's just peace. Why? Because I know what's going to happen. 
Guys, we need to act like we know what's going to happen. That we know what God is going to do. Because we know what God is going to do, we can have peace right now. That peace is what gives us hope, which makes us infectious to those around us. They wanna see a hope. They wanna see people that despite the circumstances in their life, understand that someone is in control. See, we know this no matter where we are. No matter where we've just started following Jesus, if we're in the middle of our walk with Jesus, we're at the end of it. We know that when this ends, God wins. That's why we have hope. See, Nehemiah had incredible hope, but he also had something that I feel like we're lacking many times in the Christian faith, and that's humility. See, his second, second secret to influence, it's humility. So I think we miss this many times and we see humility, especially in Jesus. I mean, Jesus, right before he's going to die, he washes the feet of his disciples, including the disciple that's going to betray him. And then we see him go up on the cross and die for the people that are spitting on him. Incredible humility. We see the same thing with Daniel. We see him respecting those around him. We see him asking politely for things. See, what Daniel understands is very simply this, is everyone deserves respect, even our enemies. Everyone deserves respect, even our enemies. And Daniel shows it to us when he finds out the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. See, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, Daniel interprets it and realizes it means that he's gonna die in the next couple months. And I don't know about you, I'm not like Daniel, I'd just be petty in the situation. Because if this is the king that enslaved me, that brought me over, that put me in this situation, that took away my future, I'm gonna be petty about it. I'm gonna walk into the room and go, hey, how many of you guys are gonna be around here next year? Nebuchadnezzar, put your hand down. How many of you guys think you're healthy? Nebuchadnezzar, put your hand down. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, I am so happy I get to be the one to tell you this. Hey, remember when you first kidnapped me, guess what? You're gonna die. That's not at all what Daniel says. In fact, here's what Daniel says. He says, oh, king... I wish it was anyone but you. See, what Daniel cared about and what he eventually did was winning over the king, not destroying him. See, Jesus isn't into wiping out our enemies. He's into winning them over. He's into winning them over. See, and the, the, the realization that has to happen for us to do that is we have to see people not as our enemies, but Satan as our enemy. See, the moment we see people as our enemies, we've lost the battle. That's exactly what the enemy wants us to do. And so what we have to do is show grace to those around us, whether or not they are doing the things we feel like they ought to do. In 2 Timothy 2, this is a, a chapter or a verse here that really speaks to this. It says this, it says, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone. Be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change their hearts and they will learn the truth. Here's why, you gotta get this. Then they will come to their senses and escape the devil's trap for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. Which means this, the reason somebody is doing the wrong thing is not because they are evil, it's, being, it's because they are being held by the evil one. It's because they're choosing, they, they've chose something and he has control over their lives. I got a question for you guys. How many, we can just raise our hands. How many of you in here have ever been disrespected or somebody told you they didn't like you? 
probably should be everybody. All right, put your hands down. How many of you ever went to that person uh, for instruction in life, for advice? Probably not, right? Because if somebody dislikes me, has disrespected me, and I think they're, they're not for me, why would I talk to them? Guys, in the same way, I, I want us to understand this. If the world around us thinks we hate them, we dislike them, and we don't believe they're worth anything, the last place they're gonna come when they need help is the church. Because we just sang a song called Reckless Love that talks about the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. But I gotta ask you the question, when we are talking to people that are not following after God, are we showing them reckless love or reckless condemnation? Because even Jesus, when he came, he said, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. And so our job is not to condemn the world around us, but to love the world around us. But some of the ways we live our lives, we're cutting off so many people from the truth they need to hear. So I, th I think it's kind of like this. I, when one of my first messages to adults, I taught a lot to students early on, but one of my first messages to adults, I started off the message and I went to UF and I told an FSU joke. And if you're from the North, you don't know that, that's a big rivalry, UF and FSU. And about a quarter of the crowd laughed and about half of the crowd did not think it was funny at all. And I remember going into my message and talking through it and noticing that a lot of people just were not listening to me. I was like, wow, that's kind of crazy. And so I get off the stage, my dad walks up to me, he goes, so do you normally like to make half the crowd mad at you before you start a message? I was like, what are you talking about? I thought it was a funny joke. He goes, it was disrespectful. He goes, the way you started off that message gave the idea to some of those people that they're not worth hearing it. I, I got a question for you guys. Is the way that we are coming off on social media to the people around us about our political views, about our ideologies, cutting us off from a lot of people? Are we, are we saying things right now that are coming off that you're right and I'm wrong and I don't even respect your position? Because if we are, guess who they're not gonna come to when they need help? Guess who they're not gonna get next to when they need help? So we've gotta check ourselves and our motives many times. We've gotta make sure that what we're saying is what God would say, not just what we think. Because our job is to influence the world and it's really hard to influence the world when they don't like you or they don't think you like them. Guys, if you wanna lose influence, go on rants. If you wanna gain influence, listen to others. Notice what Daniel did. He learned their religion. He understood it, why? So that he could help them understand how God was different. Is in youth ministry, one of the things that I had to learn was a lot of religions of other places. And the reason I did is because I had all these students coming to me going, hey, all religions are the same. All religions lead to the same God. And as I studied all these religions, I found out very quickly, no, they don't. No, they don't. And the reason I studied those religions was not so I could follow them. It was so that I could have a conversation with people who believe that to help them understand why my God is different. See, Daniel respected them enough to learn about them so that he could tell them how his God was different. He had humility. And the last thing that Daniel had, the last secret to his influence was wisdom. It was wisdom. Daniel knew how to pick his battles. He knew when to speak, he knew when to stay silent. He knew when to take a step forward and he knew when to not take a step. 
I mean, we see him show incredible respect uh, with his food. We see in the way that he asked for it. We see him show incredible respect to the king at different locations. We see him have incredible wisdom so that he knew the moment that God wanted him to move. Here's the other thing that Daniel never expected. He never expected the people that didn't know God to act like God's people. I think we can miss that sometimes. We can look at the world around us and we go, why aren't they acting that way? Because they don't know God. And our job is not to tell them what's going wrong. Our job is to tell them the good news. We're supposed to tell them the good news about how God loves them. God actually says, hey, they need to meet me first and then I will help them change. Your job is not to tell them what's wrong with them. See, Daniel understood that. He goes, how can they understand who God is if they haven't met him yet? How can they live a life that they're supposed to do if he is not a part of their life yet? I just gotta say this on the side. One of the biggest turnoffs I feel like to the church is people looking inside the church and looking at how the church always is against itself. You see people talking about other people. People make, like, basically saying, this is what, the way we need to do this. And the way they're doing it is wrong. And basically you have people arguing about preferences. And what the world sees is not a group of people that are united. They see a group of people that are fractured. See, wisdom will allow us to understand what we should talk about and what we shouldn't, what matters most and what doesn't. And I just wanna give you this phrase, and this phrase has, it has caused me a lot of time of thinking through my own life. There is a big difference between what we don't like and God forbids. There's a big difference between what we don't like and what God forbids. Daniel chose his battles. Is it wrong to learn the religion of the Babylonians? No. Is it wrong to practice it? Yes. Did he learn the religion? Yes. Did he practice it? No. He understood his limits and what he ought to do. See, what God was asking Daniel to do throughout his life is what he's asking us to do many times. He's like, I just need you to be a light. I need you to be a light. I think sometimes we can, we can go, well, I'm not that bright of a light, or you know, I don't have a stage or, or anything like that. And God's like, go, no, 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 I don't need you to be the brightest light, I just need you to be a light. Because as the world gets darker, as the world gets tougher, guess what shines brighter? It's our light. I remember about four or five years ago, there was a hurricane that was about to come through and it was just a, it was a category one hurricane. So I wasn't really worried about it, but my wife was up in Alabama with the kids and I was like, you should stay up there because I really don't wanna deal with kids if the power goes out. And so they're staying up there and I, I, I grew up in South Florida. So I'm like, I understand hurricanes. So I went to go prep for the hurricane and I prepped badly. I went out and I got a bunch of junk food. And then I'm like, well, this last, I need something else. So I bought a bunch of tuna, like, large things of tuna. So best case scenario, I gained 10 pounds in the first two days. Worst case, I had to eat tuna. And I remember sitting there that night and the winds were picking up. And as the winds were picking up, all of a sudden, you know what's gonna happen. All the lights go up. Power goes out. The lights go out in there. You know, all the street lights are out. There's no lights coming in from the neighbors. The moon is being blocked by the overcast. So it is pitch black dark. And I grabbed my flashlights, which I had several of, and realized very quickly that none of them had batteries that worked. I'm a great prepper. And at that moment I go, we have candles, which is the first moment I've ever been excited about candles because I'm not a fan of candles. 
Because while you light them, you're literally watching your money like burn away. I'm like, this is, this is ridiculous. And I'm looking around and there's no candles in the house. I'm like, this, how did this happen? My wife loves candles. All I could find was these little tea lights. Have you ever seen tea lights before? Nobody's ever said, hey, we need more light. Let's light a tea light. You've never heard that, right? That's never, it's like, hey, we need to make this room a little bit more ambiance. So they, they get a thing with water and they put tea lights in them and they light them and it looks pretty. But I grab the tea light. I'm going, this is as good as I've got. I mean, I, I don't need to do a lot. I just need to be able to see where I'm going and check everything in the house. And so I light this little tea light and all of a sudden I can see the entire room. I can see everything around me. I can easily make it to where I need to go. And it wasn't because this tea light gives off an incredible amount of light. It's because in the darkest times, even the smallest lights are powerful. Guys, sometimes the darker it gets, the more powerful our light is. See, God's not asking you to, to have this big light on all the time. God's just saying, hey, just, just keep it on. Just keep it on. Just keep doing what I've asked you to do. Just keep doing what I've asked you to do and I'm gonna allow your influence to grow so that you can change the world around you. Now, God's not saying, hey, I want you to be just like Daniel and change an entire nation, and, you know, lead a revival across an entire nation. But what he is saying is this, if you just keep your light on, then maybe you can lead a revival in your family. If you just keep your light on, maybe you can lead a revival in your workplace. If you just keep your light on, maybe you can lead a revival in your classroom. And despite how dark it is, God says, if you keep your light on, I will give you the opportunity to lead others. And church, let's just think about this for a moment. But if everyone at Grace Family Church decided to keep their light on, if we decided to do these things, the number of places, the number of families, the number of workplaces, the number of neighborhoods that would get to know God, how the city would be affected and the revival that would happen out of it. If we all just decided to do these things, if we decided to live with a hope and an understanding that God is who he says he was, and we know in the end he's gonna win. If we live with the humility that respected those around us that didn't see other people as evil, but as people that God absolutely loves and he has a plan for. If we had wisdom, if we had wisdom to speak when we needed to speak and to shut our mouths when we needed to, what would change? What part is it that you need to work on? Is it you've lost hope? Well, maybe you need to crack open God's word. Read it, see what he's already done and what he promises to continue to do. Maybe it's humility, maybe, maybe it's wisdom. One of the best ways to find out if you're deficient in that is to ask people around you that love you. They go, no, yeah, maybe you shouldn't have talked at that moment. Yeah, you, you're coming off this way. Guys, why? Because our entire role here as Christians is to win the rest of the world for Christ. It's to affect the people around us. God's not expecting us to do it all on our own, but we've been placed perfectly where we need to be to be a light to those around us. You know, maybe for some of you here today, your, your first step is really to, to get the hope that we're talking about that hope that comes from God. You see, it's very simple what we believe. We believe Jesus came down to this earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins as the perfect sacrifice, and he rose again. And if we believe in that, we commit our lives to him, we get to spend eternity with God. But not only that, 
God gives us the Holy Spirit to help us walk throughout our day. So if that's something that you would like to do, I wanna say a prayer out loud here in a moment that you can say quietly right where you're at and start that relationship with him. So if we could across all campuses, if we could bow our heads and close our eyes. If you wanna start that relationship, I'm gonna say this prayer out loud that you can say quietly right where you're at. Dear God, I know that I've sinned. Please forgive me. I believe in your son Jesus, that he lived, that he died, and that he rose again. And today I'm committing my life to you. God, please give me hope. God, please give me a future. God, thank you for your love. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer today, that is the best decision you will ever make. And we'd love to help you with some next steps. So right now I'm gonna ask the campus pastors to come up and close out the service with some next steps. Thank you for listening to the Grace Family Church podcast. For more info, check out gfcflorida.com or connect with us by texting the word CONNECT to 81313. We look forward to meeting you at one of our locations soon.